In this episode, Tanya talks about her book called Who's Who of the Brain. The book is really cool, but I'll leave it with Tanya to explain more in this episode. What I do want to do, though, is give a shout out to Jessica Kingsley Publishers for sponsoring this episode. They're providing two copies of Who's Who of the Brain for a special giveaway. To find out more about how to enter the draw to win a copy of Tanya's book, please check out the Psych Attack social media accounts on either Twitter or Facebook. The handle is at PsychAttackCast. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of Psych Attack. I'm Dr. Jasmine B. MacDonald. Today, Dr. Tanya Hanstock and I explore mental health disorders and child development. I hope you're going well and have settled in with a warm cup of tea. Hey there, Tanya. Thanks for joining me today. No worries. I'm really looking forward to it. Let's start with a random icebreaker question. And what I have for you today is, if you could travel anywhere and take anyone with you, where would you go and why? Well, I have a goal of when travel can commence again, international travel. So I would go to Disneyland because it's always been a childhood dream. And I have a three and a half year old son and he's just starting to get the concept of Mickey Mouse and Pluto and Minnie Mouse and all that. And he actually asked to watch on YouTube videos of people walking through Disneyland and they're current, they're up to date ones with people with masks and they have them filmed during the day and night and they're just showing all the different attractions and the parade and the rides. And so, yeah, he talks about going to Disneyland and I would like to go to Disneyland too. I love that answer. I think it was just last week I was watching on Disney Plus behind the attraction and in the the very first one they show the footage from the date Disneyland was open and how they were just recording people walking around and enjoying all the attractions so I love that it's like they've come full loop to do that now because of COVID that's really funny (laughs) it is funny to see how current they are and see the mask and what that looks like and and I think there's something really special about showing children things from your childhood or what you wanted to do as a child like I've taken my son on a few different holiday destinations where I have been as a child on holidays and it's like reliving part of your childhood and sharing the, the special parts and there's something really beautiful about that and like I said I haven't been to Disneyland but I, I think it's pretty special to go with him and and I love all the child stuff like I'm a child psychologist I love games and playing and all that sense of magic it's a nice way to stay in touch with the inner child to have a child and try and see things through their eyes it brings it back much easier oh absolutely yeah well I look forward to hearing about that trip when you do um eventually have it that's (laughs) amazing plastered all over Facebook yeah (laughs) so it should should be (laughs) I am really excited to have a chat to you today on the show because I was thinking back to me as an undergrad student and you being one of the first clinical psychs that I had actually ever met outside of the university context, you know, like a real person, not a lecturer. (laughs) (laughs) It's lovely that you remember that time. It doesn't seem like a long time ago, but I'm thinking it was quite a while ago. (laughs) We sat in that cafe and we had a conversation about your psychology pathway and, you know, what postgrad study is like. And that's my segue into asking you to introduce yourself to listeners and your background. 
I went to uni straight after high school and I always wanted to work in the helping professions and something uh, health related and I had thought psychology looked really interesting. I think we all think that at various times and I always got along with people. I always chatted to strangers on the bus and people would talk to me about quite sensitive information and stuff like that and I didn't get too stressed in an emergency or crisis so I came from a an area on the north coast that was quite diverse in socioeconomic status you know I went to public schools yeah so I was surrounded by lots of different people I saw lots of things that I kind of feel has helped um, me understand and probably engage clients a bit more easily I did a Bachelor of Arts, so I actually had to do some other courses as well as psychology. So I did sociology and linguistics. And I think like most people, you go into psychology first year in undergrad thinking you're going to do pretty much what you end up doing in postgrad. So seeing clients and learning how to work with people and being a bit surprised uh, that it was quite theoretical and very research focused and a lot of statistics, which luckily for me, I was not a bad mathematician, particularly I love stats in high school. So found that reasonably easy, thank goodness, because it was a big part of getting through that, that undergraduate degree. Yeah, so I really enjoyed my time at University of New England and living in college and the whole college life. And I had, you know, friends from where I came from, which was from uh, Lismore, Ganilaba area on the North Coast. And in those early years, I really actually really like sociology and linguistics and especially the development of language so the child development stuff but as psychology went on in second and third year uh, it became a bit more interesting there's certain courses that I really enjoyed like child development uh, psychopathology like abnormal psychology which is a bit more about mental health disorders and substance use and um, so things that are a bit more uh, clinical psychology based so I stuck with it and became more interested as time went on and I could see glimpses of what you know was coming that I could actually do more practical clinical work and um, I had an awesome honours supervisor and my honours thesis was on acne and the psychological effects of that and it was also looking at things like a uh, mild form of body dysmorphic disorder and it was quite an interesting subject and a lot of my subject were people in the college system as well and undergraduate students so yeah so I had a really lovely time in fourth year and and enjoyed research and that was quite practically applied clinical sort of based research got a reasonable honours grade and passed the interview to get into the clinical program and started and loved it and remember thinking this is what I signed up for all those years ago (laughs) this is what I thought I was signing up for in psychology in undergrad and it's taken me you know four years and this is my fifth year now study and um, I was really quite behind in well in life experience and and clinical experience but just soaking it all up like a sponge I didn't have to unlearn things because I hadn't learned it to begin with so I was just (laughs) learning what they told me and learning it like how they wanted me to learn it And then my first actual job when I graduated was at a child and adolescent mental health inpatient unit. It's still the Nexus in John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle. And wow, what an amazing job that was to be exposed to so many young people, children, adolescents, severe mental health issues or developmental issues and, um, you know, associated health issues that are affecting their mental health issues. And it was the first inpatient unit for children and adolescents in New South Wales outside of Sydney. Yeah, I loved it. I actually love working with acute uh, mental health issues. Felt very privileged to help people at that really distressing time in their lives. 
um, and to provide some form of comfort and help to them and their families. So I was there for a few years and then I had a really enjoyed working in the area of mood disorders, particularly bipolar disorder, because we're seeing a lot of young people around 15 to 19 really is the, the average age of onset. It's hard to diagnose because it can look like many other things. So seeing clients and watching the onset and trying to get the diagnosis and the treatment sorted out as quick as possible to alleviate as much trauma and stress and suffering and yeah, so then we developed a uh, outpatient program in the community called the Bipolar Program and we were located with an early psychosis service and seeing a lot of clients and doing a lot of therapy and then I did an outpatient outreach clinic to Singleton. From there I went to Wagga and that's where I worked as a youth mental health worker working with the community mental health team, the adult team and the CAMS team and then they nicely let me one day wait to Riverina Headspace where I worked with that amazing team and working with young people and doing assessments and therapy work. When I was doing the doctorate, I did a lot of shoots and a lot of marking. So I did a lot of learning some academic skills that way. And then when I was in Wagga, the same, I was doing lectures and workshops and doing some online courses and things like that. So I've kind of tried to keep my feet over both sides of the fence of academia and clinical work because I really feel they both help each other. Like I really love teaching uh, young psychologists and clinical psychologists and um, I always like doing research so I've always been publishing during that time as well sometimes case studies um, sometimes actual bigger projects yeah so that's probably me in a nutshell it's probably pretty long I probably missed a little bit in there because I actually went from Wagga back to work back at University of New England running the clinical and health psychology program that I had been a student in which was surreal that's pretty cool so I actually ran that program for a few years and then I came back to Newcastle and worked in child and family health team which is now called the child development clinic and that is where I did more pure focus on child development which is typical and then like developmental issues and like you know I had done ASD assessments and things like that but I did a lot more on um, diagnosing ADHD and really early age you know IQ assessments and getting kids ready for their starting of their education working with a very big multidis team with pediatricians and OTs and speech therapists and social workers and neuropsychs and child and educational psychologists. And yeah, it was, it was really cool actually. Uh, it was great. And then I got the job here at the University of Newcastle, the convener of the clinical psychology program and the doctor of philosophy clinical psychology program. So I always say to people, I have been a full-time clinician and a part-time academic, and other times I've been a full-time academic, part-time clinician, and I just balance them out a bit. But I definitely feel like that's a good fit for my skill set. I really kind of describe myself as jack-of-all-trades, master of none. I really can do lots (laughs) of different things. I like that diversity, and um, like I said, I feel like it helps me be a better clinician when I'm doing active research and also having all those clinical skills and clinical knowledge helps me think about what research is really needed and what's, you know, the best way of doing things with participants and uh, making it as applied and translational as possible. The key model that we work with in psychology is a scientist practitioner model and everything that you've just described is um, this beautiful example of taking both really seriously and integrating them. You know, most of us who've trained in psychology have been really interested in that, but it's really hard to pull off. It is. It's not easy. And you have to kind of live two lives in the one. You know, you really are working at two careers in the time you can do one. So sometimes you don't look that great in one versus the other. So it's an interesting concept. 
and I always just be mindful when people are comparing my publication rate, which isn't too bad, but it can look like if you're a pure academic, it might be like, oh, that's okay. But you know, but then as a clinician, you go, oh, wow, that's like quite good. So you just kind of put it in context. I had a, a win in publishing my from my honours thesis many years ago. So I published two papers from my honours thesis. That first one, I remember, accepted straight away and had quite positive feedback and there was a few things we had to change from both reviewers but my supervisor say, said to me you know you've had a really easy run this first go and you you think it's easy but it's not this easy normally you normally get rejected and then you have to reformat it to another journal and um it can that's good supervision you. that's yeah you know, setting realistic expectations that you know <laughs> this isn't what always happens and you've been a bit lucky and uh you know so but it did create this interest of mine in publishing and so I always kept up my publishing even when I worked full-time in clinical settings where research wasn't really a requirement but I luckily worked with people that were quite academic minded and also always you know encouraging great evidence-based practice and educational programs within our teams like you know journal clubs we had this thing at Nexus called the Brain Breakfast where we would have two talks once a week one being quite the theoretical research component of an issue, say self-harm, like why people may engage in self-harm and what's happening at a biological level and what's reinforcing about that. And then the next person would present on, okay, so now we know the theoretical side, what's the practical application of how we manage it? And um, so we might have, you know, a, a clinician talk about how we could find other ways for people to learn to regulate their stress and, you know, emotions and, and how to self-soothe and things like that. And we actually went to conferences as, as a team and we would put in abstracts and present on different research. I would apply for ethics and do some research on various things that was happening in our unit. And it just lent itself well because we were seeing some quite severely unwell are young people that you might have read about in textbooks but to see and actually work with people and then see what works and you want to help um, other people learn the easier way and not the hard way and you know when things didn't go so well like teach people about that as well so they avoid similar mistakes and that's when I started publishing case studies uh, which is one of my areas of interest as well because I think that's a very practical applied um, form of research. I find those ones I get the most requests for reprints and full text prints um, and I often get emails as soon as they're published from countries where people want to read about case studies so I use them in my training with the students and I also help them with writing up tricky cases and so kind of helping them as a clinician but also help guide them as future researchers as well and and a lot of my clients would really enjoy being asked to be part of a study and um, that people were learning from them and or if they were being written up as case study I would talk to them about that and get their permission and, and they would feel quite mostly people would say yes and be quite happy to um, it'd be de-identified details so they wouldn't be we wouldn't breach confidentiality but they were feeling quite honored that you know that they were chosen and you know they were helping other people um, learn more about say bipolar disorder or whatever issue they had that we were uh, helping treat them for and then I would go to conferences and then I would come back and I talk to my clients about things I'd learned and what was happening in the field and and I guess I'm just always want my clients just like my students to be the best they can be and to know as much as they can I think knowledge is power and it reduces anxiety and misinterpretation and things like that so the more they know the more empowered they are and the more 
choices they can make and the more assertive and articulate they can be towards their treating team, which won't always be me. They, you know, they have to sometimes in different services I've worked in, they've gotten to an age where they have to be transferred to an adult mental health service, for example, and, you know, they have to then form rapport with their new treating team and then they have to articulate themselves and we have to work collaboratively with our clients and that they're part of the treating team and they're a very important mm. part of that treating team so empowering them to speak up when they're having side effects that are really hard to live with and being able to tell us when they're not going well and to be able to disagree with the clinician and say why and feel safe to do that. Yeah, great examples of how to incorporate practice into research and research into practice. And I really want to be part of a brain breakfast. That sounds amazing. <laughs> we used to actually have breakfast too. It was early in the morning and we would have nutrition, like a nutritional breakfast with the dietitians would, you know, have to be okay with it as well. We used to get quite a few regular people from the community and who worked in mental health particularly and we'd get people who worked within the hospital as well and uh, and we would ask some of our external colleagues to present at times as well so it became a bit of a community educational program. The psychiatrist who ran Nexus at the time, Professor Ken Nunn, he had a model, he used to call it the brain by personality and he personify different parts of the brain and he would try to help people understand complicated neurobiology and neuroanatomy and neurochemistry by giving these parts of the brain human names and that linked in with their character linked in with the function of that brain so he kind of set it in like a town that was and like the frontal lobe was the mayor of the town and it told the rest of the brain what to do and um, it was a thinker and um, it was a big part of the personality and if something went wrong with it then you know like the rest of the brain wasn't quite sure what to do and so he had a few characters and so through the brain breakfast he started presenting some of them and then he asked me to help him develop a bit of a series on the brain in the areas we that hadn't been developed and I suggested well why don't we make it into a book and each chapter being part of you know the character and then the facts really about that brain area so we worked and we worked very part-time on it with another psychiatrist who was over in England Brian Lass it's called who's who of the brain and again it's set in this town and the brain's the town and um, each part of the brain is a prominent character in this town so each chapter starts by introducing that character and we actually got an illustrator to draw a picture of what that person would look like so there's a little story about them and what they do well in the town and who they relate to the best and then also what they do when they're going well and what happens when they're not going so well and who helps them out and then the rest of the chapter was what we know about that brain area and and some case studies linking to when people have had those issues in that area of the brain so that was most of the book. And at the end, they're all together at this function, a social function, and things were going well. And then eventually things suddenly it sets on fire and everyone's running around and who's struggling the most and then um, what everyone does in, when they're not working, when they're distressed, and then how they all come together one by one to help each other and then function again. And I need to read this book. It's great. <laughs> like, you know, I feel biased by saying it's a great book, but it helped me understand the brain because they're quite complicated names to remember. You know, and it's something we all have and it'd be good if we all knew about it. And I found it mm. a popular book with neurologists explaining to clients when they had impairments in various parts of their brain. I used it teaching students about the brain and trying to help them understand as a clinician, you still need to know about human biology and neurobiology, particularly with mental health issues and development. And 
yeah, it was great. It was great fun. But I guess that's my style and, and I've learned that from others is how do you make it personable so the person's interested? How do you make it easy to remember and understand? Yeah, and how do you engage the list, you know, the listener and make it memorable? Different people have read different chapters and like said, Oh, you know, my relative had a stroke in that area and and it gave them a bit more understanding of that brain area and why they do what they do now and it wasn't my original idea, so I have to thank Ken. He had that great creative brain himself to come up with those ideas and uh, I, ha- I guess I had the energy and <laughs> the interest in writing and um, researching. And- but it sounds like the trend of the things you've done in your career where it is very team-focused rather than trying to just pursue things alone. Yeah, because that would never work. Even clinically, um, you have to work within the team and you often work uh, in co-therapy, I find. You know, you become part of this treating team for clients and it's really a powerful experience when you're working with team members and a client's getting better and clients might not know this, but, you know, you you still think about them and you you have this one-way relationship with them where they you know about them and they don't know much about you and um and then you finish that relationship you know when they no longer need you and you know they've gotten better and that's that's a sort of sign of a good therapist you make yourself redundant you know you teach them as much skills and give them much help that they will get better and and you give them a good experience so that they will try other psychologists in the future if they need to yeah so it's really nice when i see a client and see that they're doing well I run into one of their family members it's such a nice thing to hear like the good news stories and the progress how they're going and to think that you could have helped them you know yeah I tell my um my students that because I think they get worried they're going to do harm and they they're worried about chronicity of mental health issues and they're worried mm. about clients attempting suicide or completing suicide and you know it's it could be a very risky patient population and so I think they need to hear the good news stories and that um, that people can get better and do really well and to tell your other clients about great outcomes for others they they want to hear that you've seen other people and who have the same issue as them who got better and went on and did what they had wanted to do before So Tanya, your area of expertise is practice and research in mental health disorders and child development. So I was wondering if you could talk broadly for those non-clinicians or people who might not know a lot about psychology. I think it's a really important area and time. And and I guess I'm also passionate really about early development and early intervention and how to help someone's trajectory. So getting in early when mental health symptoms first appear and sometimes what they first look like is very different than what they eventually end up having as well. So we see a lot of young kids looking like they have ADHD symptoms, for example, and that may go on to develop to be a lifelong ADHD picture, but for some it may change to more of a mood disorder or some may go on to a pathway that eventually you know, they might have down the track more psychotic disorder. So, and whether they've continued to have comorbid ADHD or if that's just how it looked at the beginning or, yeah, I find that the concept of the developmental changes of presentation over time really interesting. So basically I treat and, and research in any area that's sort of in the DSM-5. So that's our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual on Mental Health Disorders. So I'm kind of really interested in, yeah, the assessment, picking up symptoms early and then also researching what is the best treatment from a psychologist in that area 
And some of the work I do is looking at things like we might use a traditional model of CBT for a client, but we might have added a few extra components like mindfulness or some aspects of ACT and then seeing how that goes. I do have a very specific interest in bipolar disorder and that, as I said, came from working with a lot of young people at Nexus. And I find what I'm interested with that disorder is because it's such a varied presentation. So if you had bipolar disorder and you present in an unwell episode, often um, that would, for most people, it's presenting in the depressed phase. So they alternate in mood. So most of us, you know, would be in a mood that we would call euthymic, which is sort of more middle ground. It means you can have some slight ups and downs as life gives you stresses and great things. And when people with bipolar, they have these episodes where they can have euthymia, but they can also have these really low periods. They can have mild or major um, depression. And then they have some high elements so that their mood's elated and that is like hypermania if it's not so severe and then full-blown mania, which is quite profound to see in someone where they're not sleeping and they're even not eating and they're just goal-focused and they might be doing more risk-taking behaviour than normal and they might be much be more talkative and they might spend more money and might just do things that just, as I said, is out of character to them. So I guess it depends on when you see the person. That's why you've got to really see them over time to see the changes because if you just see them in a snapshot, you could make a diagnosis that's incorrect. You could just see, you see them when they're depressed and you think, oh, they, you know, they've got depression and they've got a unipolar depression and then antidepressant medication may elevate them to an elevated mood. So sometimes you don't realise someone's got bipolar until you see them treated for depression and then it's set off this hypermania or mania and then it continues and hasn't sort of settled and then there's this cyclic pattern between those mood states and some people in their mania can get so quite high and elevated they end up with psychotic features as well and then you can have a mixed mood where you're both depressed and hypermanic or manic at the same time and that's a really dangerous mood so when people are quite depressed they more likely to have suicidal thoughts but if they're depressed sometimes they don't have the energy to in motivation to plan uh, how they would go through those thoughts but if you have the high energy and the depressive thoughts it's a really difficult combination because you do then have the energy and um, the goal-directed behavior to pursue that and so it's a very difficult mood state for a lot of people I like doing research in in that area because the majority of people with bipolar disorder it's normally like a 10-year delay in correct diagnosis because it is such a difficult presentation and it's so varied so they can get diagnosed with other disorders like personality disorder borderline personality disorder or people may presume that they're taking substances when they're not their high mood can look like someone under the influence of substances so yeah usually around 10-year delay in diagnosis so that person's missed quite a lot of their life being unwell and we know the more time unwell is the more damaging to the brain so if you have untreated episodes of mania it's really quite detrimental you don't you want to limit the amount of untreated episodes as much as possible I think that helps with the engagement with health services as well like if they can actually get the right diagnosis early on and then get the right treatment the other area I've been doing more research in more recently and which is the focus of my PhD is looking at physical lifestyle behaviours and healthy lifestyle behaviours and how to help clients monitor it more because they also not only do that impacts on their physical health but 
their lifestyle behaviors impact on their mental health. So bipolar disorder, as I said, is very, uh, it's quite sensitive to the environment. So if someone has bipolar, they have to be really mindful of keeping their sleep routine and also activity levels and stimulation and because they're so sensitive to changes like that. So if they became sleep deprived, they're more likely to have a manic episode. They have to be a bit more careful than the average person in their lifestyle routines going to sleep at the same time, waking up at the same time, get, making sure they get enough sleep, you know, the healthy amount of sleep each night. We know that drugs and alcohol affects them as it does for most people, but it can really affect them and make them relapse into the, the two poles of different mood states. So they have to be very mindful of recreational drugs. They also can get triggered into relapse by stress. So they need to also learn some coping skills and be aware when they're not going so well. And they might need to see their psychologist or psychiatrist outside the scheduled appointment times. They might need some extra different medication or they might need an inpatient stay for a little while. Lifestyle factors are really important in people with bipolar. But also um, we know that people with bipolar disorder can live 12 to 20 years less than someone without bipolar disorder. And the majority, the main reason for that is due to the effects of preventable health disorders. So we know that people with bipolar disorder are more likely to have a lifestyle that is also associated with health complications like diabetes and cardiovascular disease, cancer and things like that. So that's the other aspect of my research is helping people monitor their, their healthy lifestyle, be aware of the effects of it on their mental health disorder, but also their health long-term and their lifespan long-term. Because, you know, 20 years is a lot of life to miss for them and their, their loved ones. And combine that with the 10 years of diagnostic delay and they may have self-medicated during that time. You know, we're talking now 30 years of affected time and, and that's saying if they just get the diagnosis correct and, you know, and their treatment works and right. they may not realise the effects of their lifestyle behaviours on the mental health disorder but also their quality of life long term. So some of the work I've been doing is looking at things like having participants with bipolar disorder wearing Fitbits and getting them to monitor their sleep and the quality of sleep and also things like activity level. So if we're looking at our sleep and we're looking at activity levels, we're more likely to be mindful of that and to make sure we get more sleep and we do more steps and things like that. We were using that for a year, so a bit longitudinal study with adults with bipolar disorder to see if they could actually, if these sort of objective data was helping predict signs of relapse, early signs of relapse, and how early we could pick that up so that people with bipolar disorder could actually start monitoring themselves easier and also getting that instant feedback, you know, getting that graph and getting that reminder and getting the rewards for how many steps they take and reaching a certain threshold of, of that. I think when people are on, get on well, it can be hard for them to trust other people's feedback. So I think the objective measure showing them this real life data would hopefully be more believable. They don't trust, you know, if it's part of their illness that they might be starting to be paranoid about what people are saying or that people have other motivations to tell them stuff. They would see their own data and, you know, objectively and believe that and then ask for help or change some of their lifestyle behaviours themselves. So empower them more again and, and improve their self-efficacy. Yeah, that's that's the area that I've sort of more recently been moving into with my research. Super interesting. The delay between people seeking treatment and also that delay in diagnosis, as well as that mortality gap that you talk about in your research. Yes. These things really blew my mind when I was reading your work and got me kind of instantly interested in paying attention of this is something that needs the focus that you're putting into it. One of the things I did want to ask was around 
it was in the chapter that you had written about bipolar and you were saying that pregnancy is a trigger for onset of bipolar symptoms and also a trigger for relapse and listening to it sounds like that's likely because of the stress that might come along with pregnancy is that the case or is there something else there yeah there's a there's a number of risk factors so one's hormones so for women we know that some of the risky times for onset is puberty uh hence the 15 to 19 age range we often would see so uh, we see a lot of adolescent girls developing bipolar disorder particularly around that time pregnancy again another hormone related time and menopause interesting um, we don't see a lot of bipolar in pre-pubertal children there are cases and i i have seen some cases in a very high genetic loaded family it's quite controversial and in my work over what, now 21 years working with children and adolescents I definitely saw what the literature is saying, which is the 15 to 19 mm. age of onset as being the majority, but also sleep deprivation. So we know that comes with <laughs> pregnancies and having babies, you know, when you have newborns. Right. Sometimes people, even with like a overseas trip, you know, when you used to be able to fly overseas, different time zones and sleep deprivation. So that could be the trigger, major life stresses. And we know that good stress and bad stress the brain sort of it's still stress and so even great positive things like getting a promotion or uh, increase like I think in that age range increase in exam stress as well um, things like that right I used to see also triggers with you know trauma so sexual assault or physical assault things like that but also think about that age range in adolescence, like 15 to 19, there's a lot going on there. So we're talking about hormones, we're talking about what happens around that time, you know, that people can often experiment with substances and alcohol. So they may have had a genetic predisposition for bipolar disorder and not realised or have realised but didn't realise that if they smoked marijuana or they took ecstasy, that it could trigger a bipolar disorder in them because they've got the genetics in there versus their friend who can take that and didn't have that outcome. That's another thing we see in that age range as well. And that's why we want to kind of help educate families and people that if you're having those open conversations in your home about adolescents going to parties and trying things that, okay, well, you know, we've got bipolar disorder in our family. So if you experiment with substances and alcohol, you know, you may trigger this. So we need to be making sure you are safe as you can be. And if you do engage in that, that, you know, it's smaller amounts and or you might choose not to. And how do you have those skills to combat peer pressure? So some of my clients, we would develop strategies on how to manage at a party, you know, put non-alcoholic drink in alcoholic bottles and it looks like you're drinking and you're not drinking alcohol, you know, but no one's there going, here's another drink, here's another drink. You know, I'm fine, I've got mine. Or having, you know, one alcohol drink and then a non-alcoholic drink and then also having a limit of how many drinks because it's, you know, people are on medication and it's very dangerous mixing the two time mm. so it's an interesting thing there's many risk factors and it's the combination of a few of them that's the dangerous point isn't it and I think people just don't know that they don't know sometimes what's in their family they might have had a relative that you know this is uncle such and such and we don't talk to him anymore he was a bit strange and he's estranged from the rest of the family you know you know people are adopted or and people, if they don't just, they don't want to talk about things like that, it's really hard for people to make informed choices, really. And the more we mm. form young people, then, you know, it's a hard time in life for them, even if they do know all the risk factors, having those open conversations and then also being aware of what services that young people can go to. 
to get help. And I think we're in a much better time with, you know, headspace centres. There's more of them and they're very youth-focused. I think we've learned a lot more about the development of mental health disorders and the treatment of them. Years ago, when I first started in this area in research and in clinical work, a lot of people would say to me at conferences, young people don't get bipolar disorder. Only adults did. That somehow at 18, mm. switched to midnight and you turned 18, suddenly you could develop bipolar disorder. And it just did not make sense to me at a neurological, neurochemical level. Why suddenly as an adult, you would, what we call adult, um, I guess, suddenly. Yeah, when Australian children yes. turn into adults at then 18 they could develop bipolar, but anyone <laughs> under that age couldn't and it just didn't make sense to me especially my exposure to young people in the inpatient unit and also in community mm. settings that wasn't my experience I think when people were hearing me talk about working with children adolescents they thought I was working with really young children and medicating and like that those young children with that label would get medicated for natural behavioural issues or ADHD behaviour and things like that or trauma. There's a lot of people doing clinical work and research work in perinatal and postnatal period because it's a pretty complicated time. People on psychiatric medication, some of them can be harmful to the fetus. They have to see a psychiatrist and work out what's safe. And then also some people have to weigh out the pros and cons of being on medication in pregnancy and then postnatally with breastfeeding and whether or not to breastfeed or there's a whole lot of people who specialise in that area and research in that area to help develop good guidelines on how we help women prenatally and postnatally. And it can be done and it is often done, you know, And but, but it's just got to be known, you know, someone's got to be able to say, I, you know, I have bipolar disorder and, um, and then they've got a treating team that actually is helping them during that time. One of my most memorable cases was uh, a young person who was in her early 20s who was actually... Her first pregnancy, um, she wanted to go off medication during the majority of her pregnancy because she was worried about the effects of medication on the developing baby. She did so under a lot of help. You know, I saw her weekly in one service and then the psychiatrist saw her fortnightly to monthly in the other service. She became unwell at seven months. And I think this is a case study that's in my um, chapter. And it was in the high dependency unit. And I had a clinical student on placement with me we went over and saw my client and the only two women in high dependency unit in the mental health unit one was prenatal and one was postnatal and they were the only clients in the high dependency unit wow my client was really heavily pregnant she was psychotic she was manic and she you know she was taking her clothes off and she was uh, verbally abusive to staff which was out of very out of character for her and she also was refusing oral medication and they were having to sedate her and it was a big conversation a big team meeting about her having ECT and I luckily had this rapport with her and I'd been seeing her for so long and I had to explain to the rest of the staff who just met her in this state this is not how she normally is she's very engaging respectful to help and she had said very clearly to me she'd said you know you won't recognize me when I'm unwell it's that different and she also said please whatever you do don't let them give me ECT. Mm. I had to have those conversations with her that if this continued, her refusing a medication, then that would be the only option that the staff had. And just having that conversation gave her power to actually decide to take the medication. And then with the medication, she got better within a month. And the end of her pregnancy, she was living at home and coming back as an outpatient. And she actually got to have her baby in the hospital 
she got to go to the maternity ward and she was well. She was lethargic again. There was a stage where she was unwell and there was going to be a possibility that she delivered the baby and then came back to the psychiatric unit and the baby was left on maternity ward and she would get to visit the child but she wasn't with it. And that was worst case scenario for all of us. And as you mm. know, with attachment and her maternal health and the babies. So, and I luckily got to go visit her in the inpatient unit daily and work with staff and, and be part of the big treatment team discussions and because of course child protection was involved right and they were quite reassured when they you know we did a home visit and saw how she was preparing her house for the baby's arrival and it was such a good news story that she got to have her baby and they got to be together and also that she was so well and that was a lot of work with luckily the public health system and working together as a group of clinicians and services that we could monitor her so quickly that fact when she got unwell it was so quick that she got into hospital but I remember coming back to the where I worked with with my student after we'd gone in to first see her and we saw the lady who was psychotic postnatally and my client who was psychotic and manic prenatally and my team leader saying what do you think now about having children and we were our eyes were just wide open we just hadn't realized how risky a time it was I think to see it in happening like that and how hard it is for some women Mm. but it's nice to hear that you know you can help people in that really hard time and that things can go much better than what they were before so yeah and um, from all accounts I've heard that client went on and became you know lovely mum and the little baby grew up well and yeah so it was it was great to be part of that. It really speaks to the importance of having a plan with the client around when you're unwell. What's your preference for treatment? How do you want to be supported? What are the things that are going to be useful for you? What are the things that are really not going to be useful for you? For you to be able to use that and sit with her and have that conversation, that's pretty powerful, Tanya. Yeah, I was at the right place at the right time. And I think because we had had so many months of working together I was kind of also having to remind staff that, you know, like it must be such a scary, confusing time. And and our staff, you know, were great. They were used to working with clients with mental health issues, acute episodes. And it must be that scary to be psychotic where you can't trust what your senses are telling you. You know, you can't trust what your brain is telling you. If you have someone that you do trust that hasn't let you down or does tell you, how it is and you know is truthful and uh you have some faith in that you know I think that really helped and to be able to have that conversation about that she has a choice to determine where things change to you know um she had enough insight still to make the right decision that she wanted all along which was not to have ECT and and in other cases I've had clients have ECT and they've been quite happy with the outcome and to have that for some people it's life-saving yeah and some people there's just no choice but that I think we had the time we had the relationship and um she was very insightful and actually that case was the first time I ever met anyone who never had lows she actually only had highs and psychotic highs when she had really quite large highs and I got that confirmed by a previous psychiatrist of hers that she had actually um, given me consent and permission to contact and he had never seen her depressed either. Mm. Yeah, it was a really interesting concept. In the previous DSM, it was like bipolar disorder, not otherwise specified, but actually in the current one, she could actually be diagnosed as bipolar disorder based on that, just having the highs. 
So it was quite educational for me. And, you know, I didn't have a lot of experience with perinatal work myself because I'd mainly worked with children and adolescents. But working in headspace, suddenly, you know, the age range was up to 25. And I often had young people who were pregnant and just had babies and had little toddlers. So it was actually such a great opportunity with Headspace to work across the age span of like, you know, 12 up to 25 because so much can change, you know. I've had, you know, little kids and that had anxiety. I had other kids who had school refusal and then I had, you know, adolescents that, you know, experienced bullying and various onset of mental health disorders and then I had these young people that were married or having children and, you know, managing work and study developmental psychologist dream <laughs> yeah it was it was really I felt like that was yeah a definite um good good part and it's very weird when I look back because I did a lot of my clinical degree clinical work with not having a child myself and now more recently having a child and and it's just interesting to look back on all the work and you know having empathy and helping clients it's still not having that life experience myself it's mm-hmm. a very different Uh, aspect now having that life experience and watching you know being around um, mothers groups and watching so many little kids and toddlers and seeing child development in such a large range you know I teach about um, developmental milestones and when you should be worried but there's such a diverse range in children as well yeah and just sort of sometimes waiting a bit to see if it is an issue versus something that they pick up eventually but maybe just a bit um, behind others and Mm. how we all develop at different stages like none of us develop all our areas at the same time you know we've we've got strengths and weaknesses in various areas and things come on board a bit quicker than others a lot of really interesting points have been raised for me and I especially appreciate the way you've highlighted for bipolar disorder some of these really life stages or milestones that are normative that are stressful for anybody To be able to look at bipolar as a reaction to an understandably stressful triggering event or period of time, I think is really useful. And hopefully then we have less people who go, that is, you know, the eccentric or odd uncle that we don't talk to now. So I really appreciate that, Tanya. Yeah, I think the more you know, the better. And I think it explains sometimes some things that people get confused by and um, having those conversations in family is really important. I've had even some peers, some colleagues, some friends get diagnosed with bipolar disorder over over the years and look back at their family history because they were the, might have been the first person diagnosed, which is always the hardest, mm. and then like find other people in their family that, you know, been an inpatient unit but no one talked about why or if there was a family history of suicide, for example, but never know or label that as another thing you know reaction to drugs and alcohol or something like that Mm. and then like think well maybe that could have been maybe that person had that as well like who knows and then once someone gets diagnosed and treated and they're the first in the family then the next person in the family that can be quicker for them because there's already one person known but it's often hard when people are trying to find um, a family history um, if it's not talked about and and look I just think it's a different era now where we talk about mental health disorder and we have the ads and we know you know we're constantly reminded about you know Lifeline and Beyond Blue and Headspace and um, the public mental health system and I think it's definitely more of a conversation and less stigma and I think the more we talk about it and um, acknowledge it, the less stigma there will be because it's actually 
the prevalence rates say that it's actually more common than we think. Mm. Like, so bipolar disorder is like one to two percent of the population here in Australia have it. Right. And that's the ones who are being diagnosed. There's a lot of people who go undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. No worries in Wagga. I used to do these school drama plays with the you might remember that too Jasmine. I'd go out and help I'd run this drama festival and we'd go out and help the students write plays on mental health disorder and one group of students was writing a play on schizophrenia and they read the stats it was like one percent and they realized like in their year there was a hundred children in that year I think it was year 11 and they thought wait a minute that means you know there's at least one person in our year that could have psychosis and eventually schizophrenia and putting it in those that perspective is quite empowering then mm. suddenly it's not this oh this you know won't happen to someone we know it's actually no this is actually it's our community oh, it happens and yeah 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 definitely and so that really brought it home for them and then they were very motivated to do this amazing play and um, help inform other people about early signs of schizophrenia and how to get assessed and treated and, and get well so um yeah it's very good yeah it's awesome if people want to reach out to you or they want to keep up to date with what you're working on is there a place that we can point them to to do that yeah so um so I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Newcastle and I have my staff profile page which has a list of all my research outputs and has my email address but yeah tanyahanstock at newcastle.edu.au yeah ask me any questions that might have come from this and uh yeah, and anyone who's listening, thinking about a career in, in mental health services and being a clinician, I, you know, I can't tell you enough how rewarding it is. And I hope some of the things you've heard today inspires you to uh, help others and to learn more about mental health and development and how they interact and um, also how to be a clinician who's also a researcher. Yeah, so I hope you've enjoyed the conversation we've had today. Tanya, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the just the opportunity to reflect on my career and um, remind myself of the some of the great cases and also why I do what I do. And I still love it. It's 21 years and I'm never going to change my career and I found my job for life. So I'm so glad. For those of you at home, that's all for today. Show notes for the episode can be found at www.psychattack.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Psych Attack, please rate it on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode to help other people find the show. If you have questions or feedback, you can reach out on Twitter at Psych Thanks for listening and we'll catch up with you again next time.